let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll get into our, our text for the day. God, I am before you now just asking you to do your work today, asking you to do exactly what you say you, you will do. So I know that I technically don't need to ask, but I let you know that I am dependent. And I say that I desire, Lord, your word to transform, your truth to penetrate, Lord, darkness and to penetrate our lives and to transform us more into your likeness, Lord. For those, that are, for those of us that find ourselves just enslaved and bound in different things, whether it's, whether it's something of the flesh or whether it's disbelief, God, I pray that the light of your truth, the light of the truth of Jesus and your love and your, your way would come in, God, and in, in a way that we cannot escape, grip us tightly, Lord, and bring us to that sweet place of surrender that is terrifying but wonderful, Lord, that we could, again, find wholeness, freedom, redemption in you and Christ, and Lord, live a life that honors and glorifies you and lives out our purpose. So God, we give you this time, Lord, as I've studied this this week, you know that over and over again, I have just felt so inadequate to teach this, God. And so I just pray that you would be glorified, Lord, work through a broken vessel, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I went through a stage in middle school where I loved baseball cards. Anyone else? Any girls in here ever get into baseball cards? We got one, did, did you... Haley, right? Haley? Haley did. So Haley and Megan, we got the two, those are the two cool girls in the room. Um, but I went through a stage of loving baseball cards, and it's, and it's amazing, like, how captivating they get and how quickly that happens. And so to imagine my, my joy when I went to my grandmother's house and was rifling through her closets, as I always like to do, and found this shoebox. Man, guess what was, guess what was in the shoebox? My stepdad and his brother's baseball collection. Now, some of you, this is going to be like, you, don't, you know, it won't register at all. There were Nolan Ryan rookie cards in there, Roberto Clemente rookie cards in there, Johnny Bench rookie cards in there. I mean, just crazy stuff from that era of baseball. So I was, I was geeking out. It was also torturous because I knew that they would never be mine, but it was, it was amazing. Like in, and so it was a really fun day. I mean, I was into it. It's like, it's, like, right, it's like reading the stock market. I couldn't wait for Beckett Magazine to come out. It was this thing that gave you the, the values of all the cars dating back from the very first card. And everybody wanted the Harness Wagner tobacco stamp. It was worth $200,000. You know, and I would look at that every day as if one day I'd come across it. I never did. I think my most valuable card at its peak was a Juan Gonzalez reverse negative rated rookie of Don Russ, and it was like 10 bucks. Now it's 40 cents. So, you know, but anyway, but I remember like I would every, every, every month when the Beckett would come out, I mean, I would go and I would compare my values, and I never sold one card, but I knew how much they were worth. And so it was just a really kind of a fun, a fun and also I never traded any cards. I never traded any. I, I didn't. I just was not a risk taker, I guess, and I wanted, I wanted this sure thing. I wanted what I have, and I didn't want his. I didn't want him to have what I had. And so it was just, it was a funny, a funny season for me, but cards just like anything else, are pretty funny, like how we value them. And at the end of the day, the reality is they're only worth what someone is willing to pay for them. Beckett can say that the value of that card is whatever it is, but unless someone is willing to pay that price, the card is not really worth that. So your amount of desire for something will dictate how much you're willing to give up for it. That's what we're talking about today. What are you willing to pay for the things you desire? So go ahead, open up your Bibles to Matthew 5, uh, click on your apps. If you don't have either one of those, if you look around you on the floor, there's some Bibles there underneath a chair. Feel free to use that. Andy, as soon as he gets there, is going to tell us the page number, um, 690. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that with you. We would love for that to be our gift to you. But that's where we're going to be today, continuing as we teach through Jesus' first and longest sermon recorded in Scripture, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be looking at just these verses, 27 through 30 in chapter 5. And as we continue, just a couple of quick notes to make sure we're coming at it rightly. Jesus is continuing to teach from what is known and misused 
already in the Jewish law. So he's already confronted the law saying, hey, I came to fulfill it, not abolish it, but here is how it's meant to be lived out. And the problem was not the law itself, it was the interpretation and application of the law as the Pharisees and scribes had been prescribing to those who followed. So he'd already taught that, and that he were continuing in that. We started that train a couple of weeks ago. We, we, we hit it pretty hard last week as we talked through anger, and now we're, now we're looking at a really fun subject this week as we continue. So let's go ahead and just jump right into our text, Matthew 5, 27 through 30. We're going to read the whole text right now. So here we go. I think it's on our screens as well. It says, you have heard that it was said. Again, Jesus starting with what they know. He's speaking to the old law. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And let me just tell you, as I, after I got through teaching last week, and, 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 you know, last week was this first of six kind of in a series of Jesus saying, you've heard it said, you've heard it taught. So he's taking these six kind of points as examples from the law that they, that they were misusing or misapplying and taking it deeper to a seeing how the gospel, the gospel turns our world upside down. It's countercultural. And as I, after I taught last week, I was like, man, it would have been so much easier just to take all six of these, condense them into one, broad stroke it, and and just let's get through it. And 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 really, it was because one, I was struggling of like how I'm going to faithfully make each one unique. Not that I have to do that; Scripture will do that for us. But I felt the pressure. And then two, just it gets really. It's, it's a hard, this is, these are hard things to teach. We're talking about lust this week. We're talking about divorce and oaths next week. Those get sticky and people don't like it. And so just quite honestly, I wanted to avoid it. I wanted just to be able to call to the big truth and let you guys work it out. And so just that's where I was at this week. That's what I had to work through. And then I was like, you know what? It's good to give as specific of convictions as we can give and let the Lord work in us and he be glorified through all of it. So just a little personal insight to, to what I go through in a week. And, uh, but so, so that's where we're at. So we are looking at these specifically for the next few weeks. We're looking at this, this taking deeper of this idea of not just committing, not just avoiding adultery, but not even being able to think about things like that. Uh, so that's where we're at today. So Jesus starts, like I said, with this known command against committing adultery. And, and when I say it's known, it's straight from the Ten Commandments, straight from Exodus 20:14, and also in the repetition of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5:18. So it is exact, the exact words, you shall not commit adultery. He's quoting that. The Pharisees had limited this command by applying it only to the adherence of only sharing sexual intimacy with your own spouse. And you're, so that's not bad, right? That is the literal living out of that command. So that's not bad. So why is Jesus feeling need to correct or to deepen their understanding? So again, just a reminder, the law, once again, is not bad. It's the application of it. So even in the Ten Commandments, we see that as Jesus teaches, he's not teaching it was wrong. He's teaching that their understanding was incomplete. And we see even in the commandments, it wasn't, in, it wasn't like we were waiting for God, for God to send Jesus for him to be concerned with the heart and the mind of a person. Even just three commands later, in the same Ten Commandments, it says, do not covet your neighbor's wife. Coveting happens on the inside. Coveting is, a, is an internal desiring, right? So even there we see it, and we, we kind of referred to it last week. Even, even Paul went through this, this like earth-shattering realization of God being much more concerned with the internal than the external when he said, hey, I was just worried about not committing adultery, and I died when the law revealed to me my sin that it also said, do not covet, and he said, the Lord is concerned with my heart. So again, we see that even then it was there, but Jesus is just coming to make it inescapable. So today we'll answer a few questions. We're going we're gonna to practically look at lust because we don't want to ignore it. What is lust? We're going to answer the question, why is lust so destructive? And then we're going to answer, why, what should we do 
with this kind of lust that Jesus is teaching about. So those are our, that's our kind of framework for the day. Those are the questions we're going to work through. So let's just get right to it. The first question, what is lust? Webster, the all-knowing Webster, defines lust as a couple of ways. First, very strong sexual desire. Very strong sexual desire. They also define it as a passionate desiring for anything. Passionate desiring for anything. Biblically, we, we see this word here, lustful, as the word epithumeo, the Greek word epithumeo, and that translates to this, this kind of similarly to this strong desire or longing for. And that, that word lust can be, that, and as it's translated, it's translated lust, it's translated desire, it's translated longing. We see it that it can be in a positive way, like we see it in Luke twenty two fifteen. The same word is used positively when it, in the word desire. And it says, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That's Jesus. Jesus is using the same word here in Luke that he then uses here later in a different text. But we see that it can be used positively. But here, Jesus is using epithumeo in the negative. And he's using it primarily concerned with our sexual purity. So yes, we can, we can apply lust to all things that we desire. But Jesus is concerned with our sexual purity. He is using our sexual purity as an example to teach what he has to teach us in this section of his sermon. And as, and as we think about it, thinking about what we just mentioned about Paul in Romans 7, thinking about the Ten Commandments, and, and it's, you know, we see thou shalt not commit adultery, and then just a couple of commands later, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife. And I will just say this, lust is inseparable from coveting. If you're lusting, you're coveting, okay? So you haven't broke one command, you've broken two. Let's just get it out there, okay? So it is inseparable. If you lust, you covet. And so we think about it, and maybe it's starting to take shape a little bit. Lust is the overwhelming desire to satisfy self, whether it be sex, whether it be possessions, whether it be titles, whether it be approval. We can lust after all those things, and we can lust after them positively and negatively. Jesus is talking about the negative expression, the sinful expression, the, sin, the, the expression that denies the provision and sovereignty of God. So the thing that makes lust lust is that it is geared towards satisfying self. That's what makes lust lust. And you're like, and I don't, we'll unpack this more later. I will say that, well, let's just say we'll unpack it later, okay? We'll let that hang now, let some tension build. But the thing that makes lust lust is that it is aimed to satisfy self. And I'll say this, lust, lust emerges, lust raises up when, when gratitude and humility are diminished, when they disappear. You cannot covet when you are grateful for what God has given you. You cannot covet when you're humble and you realize that all that you need cannot be satisfied by yourself. So you want let, let's just go ahead and give a quick little, little tool now. You want to you be free from this kind of desire, this kind of lust that God warns us against? Think on the person of God. Think on who he is, what he has done for you, both in himself and in Christ. Pray for gratitude. Pray for humility. Man, that will, that will build the foundation that we can, that we can go from there. We'll, again, we'll come to that more in a minute. And I, let me say this as well. You can appreciate without lusting. You can appreciate without crossing over to the need to satisfy in a way that you have to attain yourself. Again, it's the moment that your flesh rises up and says that the object of your attention, the object of your attire should be yours no matter what, should be yours, and that, that you've, in, and in that moment is when you have embraced lust, saying that it is mine. You have made that decision. You have not submitted that. You've not, in humility, you've not submitted it. With gratitude, you've not said, what you've given is enough. So that when, you're, when your flesh rises up and says that it shall be mine, no matter what, that's when you've crossed over into this idea of lust. And so we speak 
of sexual purity and lust, and that's what we're talking about here. The Word of God has given us clear understandings of where sexual intimacy should be. And, and, I, and I take a moment to say this because I, as I was kind of studying this, processing it, praying it, and thinking about the standard that we're calling, that we've been called to, that we're calling each other to, and thinking about what the, the messages I see and hear in the world, like, I, I just searched the destruction of lust on Google. Like, why is less destructive? And, and, you know, and there are secular, non-biblical non perspectives that would show how pornography is destructive, that would show how, how just that satisfying of flesh is destructive, whether it be relationship or personal. We see that. But you'll also see the other side. I read this, psycholo this academic psychological paper, and, and he, he uses lust as a natural part of the human relationship because it leads to desire, which leads to connection, which leads to blah, 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 blah. And so it was really interesting to see all these things. And so the reason why, before I kind of jump into where I'm at, I want to say that first, first, this applies to all. It doesn't just apply to those who want to honor God because I believe and Scripture tells us that God is the creator of all, and he is our sovereign God. He's our heavenly father and our just judge. There was, no one, there was no one else worthy to say what is right and wrong, and he has given a truth that is right and wrong. And because he has given that, we can say this applies to those even who don't believe, those who would say it would be weird not to satisfy your lust, those who say it would be inhuman not to, to satisfy those primal desires. So this applies there, but then also for, the, for those of us who would say we are in Christ, we have submitted our lives to the will and way of God because we understand that he is worthy and that he is good, we say this matters because he has made it clear, okay? So with that said, of course, I know that lends itself to more conversation, which I would always love to have coffee and talk about. Um, but so with that kind of caveat and foundation, we can look at the biblical understanding of where sexual intimacy should abide. It's meant solely for the context of marriage between one man and one woman. And we can start in Genesis. I'm not going to go through a big verse-by-verse -verse apologetic because that's not what this talk is about. But we can, again, do that as well. But we can start in Genesis and see it reinforced over and over again in God's picture of marriage and of, and of relational union and that intimacy. It is, it is in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. That is, that is where this enjoyment can happen without it crossing over into what we would call sin. Okay? And then we ask the question often, too, of how far is too far and first, let me just remind us, that is the absolute wrong questions. If you think about, if you've been here for the past few weeks and we've been talking about how the Pharisees and the scribes were treating the law and how they were teaching it, they were limiting it and they were extending it. They were limiting it to the point where it was attainable in their own work. So don't, don't divorce or, or don't commit adultery, just, just, not, just not going outside the bounds of your wife or your husband. And they were extending it to their own pleasure or their own control. And so we see that with divorce, how it's scripture, the scripture says, which we'll talk about next week, it says don't divorce unless, out, unless in the case of adultery. And then, but then they had extended it to where it was pretty much if there was any displeasure with your wife. Like you've heard me say every week for the past three weeks, you know, that, and that just if there's any, you, you've, uh, you saw that they could divorce their wife if like they burnt dinner. They would just write a letter and get a divorce. So they limited it and extended it. So when we ask that question, how far is too far, we're, 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 we're technically, in essence, asking the same question that the Pharisees did. Like, how much can I get away with and still be called faithful? And so let me first just say that, but then to give you something concrete, we look to 1 Corinthians 7, 1, the word for sexual relations in that, in that text is hepto. And, and, you know, and often the word that people refer to is porneia, which is just sexual immorality. And, and people have have been able to say, well, if you look at all of text and the way this is used, it's just talking about sexual intercourse. But hepto makes it to where we can't stand on that. Hepto is the idea of kindling a fire, putting a spark into kindling. Or for more modern terms, putting a key in the ignition of a car and cranking it. Right? Who cranks the car without meaning to drive it? So that's what we're seeing here. Like it's this idea of do not kindle, do not spark the desire outside of the context of God desiring it. It's on the song we see, do not awaken desire before its season. That's the idea here. So again, it's 
remember, is a matter of the heart, not just a letter of the law that God is calling us to. So lust applies that line to the mind, that same line to the mind. So when we think about the physical acts that we understand that line to draw for us, he's saying, hey, that same line applies to your mind. And if, you know, as your imagination runs and you go from appreciating and being grateful for God's creation to now dissatisfying in your mind what you believe should be yours, that's when you cross the line into lust. Now, again, I will say for those of you, if there's anyone in here that is not in Christ, that has not come to surrender their life to Christ and does not have the Holy Spirit, that, that's probably a bit of a foreign concept. And I don't say that to be exclusionary. I say it in reality and maybe to even help you relax a little bit. The Holy Spirit is given to us to help us understand the Word of God and to lead us towards the will and way of God. If you are in Christ, just to be really honest... First off, let me remind you, you have the Holy Spirit. And to be really honest, you know. You know every single time. You know when you've crossed the line. You know. It's called the Holy Spirit. He convicts. He calls you back. He will not leave you out there to just revel and roll in it. So if we're really honest, we know. We don't need someone to say, here's your line. You know. Okay, so let's, let, that's, but that's the reality. So the same physical boundaries that we would expect are also applied to our mind. And if you want to get really practical and maybe try to make it really something you can relate to, I would say thinking about if you are married or if you're thinking about just pretending you are for a moment and your spouse, anything you wouldn't want your spouse to do, anything your spouse would expect you not to do with someone else, there's just a really practical humanistic line for you. But less, I would much rather us walk abiding in a relationship with the Lord and allowing the Holy Spirit to lead and empower us, okay? So what is lust? It is the, the satisfying of self and those desires of God's good gifts, but taking them and misusing them. And we see these, these lines. Again, the question is not where is the line, but again, how is my life offered to God as all that he's given? Now we're going to continue down that path. So why is lust so destructive? And first, let me just say, it is lust that is destructive in the sin, not sex, not sexual intimacy. And I say that because we can lump them together, and God created that intimacy. He created it as a gift. He created it to be enjoyed. He even created it to reflect even his glory and his intimacy. It is not sexual intimacy that is a sin, but it is the lust thereof. If we look at the Song of Solomon, just if you want proof, if you've never read it, go read it. It is a celebration of intimacy between a groom and a bride. And I promise you at some point, two things, two things will happen. One, you'll be like, man, that's a weird metaphor. Your teeth are like goats. I don't know. So... That's supposed to be sweet. The other thing is you'll probably blush at some point. And so, I mean, like, it's just there. So if you never read it, if you're dating, don't read it together, okay? But if you're married, read it together. And if you're single, read it alone. But anyway, it's a whole other conversation. Be careful. Because uh, it is sensual and it is, it is descriptive. So, but to think about this idea uh, I came across this, this idea from John of the Cross, which you know that you're a pretty stout dude in the Lord if your name is John of the Cross. Uh, he, he said this is a guy from way back in the, in the days of Reformation. He, sa he says, The people of Israel did not perceive the sweetness of every taste in the manna. Talking about when they were in exile and they were dependent on the Lord and he gave them manna from heaven. It fell from heaven and they began to grumble against him they wanted something else. They wanted variety. So that's what he's talking about. He says, though it was there, because they would not limit their desires to it alone, the sweetness and strength of the manna was not for them. Not because it was not there, but because they longed for other meats beside it. He who loves any other thing with God makes light of him, because he puts into the balance with him that which is infinitely beneath him. So, we should desire sexual intimacy. Absolutely. We are meant to. We, are, we were created to enjoy it. 
but desiring it in the way that God created it and the, and the context that he gave it to be a gift. Practically, when we think about why lust is destructive, it, it, it enslaves. It desensitizes us to God's good gift. It desensitizes us again to the pleasures that he has given and enslaves you. And again, anything that is not, anytime you have not given yourself to God, Scripture says that we are enslaved to that. So specifically, lust and all, lust and all sexual sin are a sin against the flesh. We see that in 1 Corinthians 6.18. It says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin in a person commit, a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That's strong. Why is it waging war against your soul? Why is it a sin against the flesh? Lust is destructive because it entertains and then facilitates the elevating of desiring something over God. Again, the root of coveting is dissatisfaction. Thinking about why gratitude is such a, a, great, a great weapon, a great foundation to stand on to fight and be free from these things that entangle and enslave and distract. The root of coveting, the root of lust is dissatisfaction. And so why is it a sin against your flesh? Why is it something we should wage war against? Because God is fully sufficient. That is what he has promised you. He is fully sufficient to satisfy every bit of your need, both spiritual, eternal, and temporal and present. And he created you. He created me to be fully satisfied in him. A few verses to illustrate. Psalm 17, 15 says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And he's saying it is something that is acted upon him. Not just a choice he makes to be satisfied, but he is satisfied by him. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That is not a name and acclaimant verse. It is God shapes your desires. God gives you the right desires as you delight in him. John Piper, his whole ministry is based on that, that, that phrase of God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. It's that idea. John 4, 14, but whoever drinks of the water, this is Jesus at, you know, at the well with the woman, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So again, when God satisfies, he satisfies completely, and he satisfies all things. So we're meant to be satisfied with the will of God, the truth of God, and the person of God himself. We think lust is just about the body, just about physical things, but we see that it goes much deeper, and it goes to our very understanding of who God is. So all of a sudden, when we recognize, when we see that we are lusting, when we're elevating something above God and what he gives, we see now how all of a sudden, because we were created for his glory, we were created for fellowship with him, that all of a sudden, how that is a violence against you yourself. You are acting against what is good for you. It is not just about the body. It's not just about the things that, that we place. Our, it, is, it is an actual affront to the majesty of God. It is an actual denial of his loving work on your behalf in Christ. Man, don't let this be guilt. Let this spur you on. Let it spur you deeper. Let it, man, just flourish gratitude out of you. So a quick word, since it's here, about men and women and lust. Here we see this text speaking to men, and, and maybe it's because men are typically more visual as God created us. Um, or maybe it's just by example, and you can't say everything every time you talk. But what we know is that this is not a, an exclusive command or truth just for men. One, we see examples in Scripture of, of women having that same visual desire. First off with Eve in the garden in the fruit, and she saw that it was good, and she desired it because it was good 
She saw that it was good to eat. She saw it. We see it with Potiphar's wife and Joseph. She saw that he was strong and ruddy and desired him and framed him. And you know, and maybe you know how it goes from there, maybe you don't, but he fled out of the house unrobed as she tried to satisfy her lust. And then secondly, we can apply this to all because we look at all of Scripture and we see that when we look at lust, we're really looking at all sin. It's not just lust. This is all sin. This is any time we satisfy and entertain anything that goes against the commands of God, goes against the will and way of God, goes against the character of God as he is meant to be exhibited in our life. Remember, we don't want to limit or extend the commands of God for our ease or for our pleasure. Our pleasure and our peace and our joy is found in the commands of God. So it's not just for women. I mean, it's not just for men. It is for all of God's creation, all those that he's created for his purpose and called. So what are we to do with lust and, and really all of sin? Let's, let's, let's read again our text. We're going to look at verses 29 and 30. It says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. What are we to do with lust? And and as we read those verses, that's strong language. Gouging out eyes, cutting off hands, like that's, that's pretty drastic. It's very drastic. And, and I will tell you, this is not a prescription for us to go out and do either one of those. There are, that has happened in church history. That has happened. That is not, I mean, let's just acknowledge that cutting off of my hand or gouging, off of my eye, gouging out of my eye does not cleanse me, does not redeem me, does not rid me of my, of my flesh my propensity to desire and elevate other things above God, right? It is, again, a matter of the heart. So once again, just like the teaching of circumcision, God calls us to a circumcised heart and not just the outward expression. This is not a prescription for us to cut off hands and gouge out eyes, but it is a prescription to do whatever it takes to be free from sin. What, what, what are we to do with lust and any other sin? We are to kill it, right? Last week we talked about not diminishing, not pacifying, not entertaining, but killing it, vehemently fighting against it, doing whatever we can to be free. Our salvation is achieved to Christ and Him and Him alone, but we are invited to live out our image of God as He has made possible in our redeemed selves. So some may ask, well, hey, If the work of salvation and righteousness is completed in Christ, you know, why do I need to fight against sin? Why am I said to like put out all this effort? And I and I love there's this thing back from the 1500s, the Heidelberg Catechism, and it was these people that gathered together in 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 Germany, Heidelberg, and um, and they came up with this, and it's and it's right there with the Westminster Confession uh, as far as a, a, a concise. Um, communication of doctrine and belief for the faithful and and specifically for reform. So we come to this right here, and I love it. It it, kind of works in the form of questions and answers. And question 86 speaks to this idea of why we should fight, why we should fight even though our righteousness is in Christ. The question is this, since since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of our own, why then should we do good works? The answer, because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, is also restoring us by his spirit into his image, so that with our whole lives we may show that we are thankful to God for his benefits, so that he may be praised through us, so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and so that by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. So we are saved, reconciled into relationship for all of eternity, given the righteousness of Christ, but we are also saved into mission, into purpose, to join in for the very reason that God sent Jesus into this earth, to seek and save the lost, to live as salt and light, preserving with truth and exposing darkness with the light of Jesus. That's why we fight, because he is a sovereign, holy God who we should fear, 
and awe and reverence because he is a loving heavenly father who we should enjoy bringing our best gifts to. And our gifts are our life. That's what it's about. So how do we kill sin? How do we kill it? That's our response to lust. We kill it, right? So how do we kill it? As it's already been stated, the mind and the heart are the soil where sin grows. Look at the, look at the progression we see in James 1, it's verses 13 through 15. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted, and when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire when it has conceived when it's entertained and allowed to sit and not held captive, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's the progression. So first we kill sin by abiding, by, by, and then in the transforming relationship giving to us in Christ, and as we experience in his word, we then offer our lives in response as he makes his will and way known. And it, now you see the importance of a transformed mind. Your mind. You want a mind that belongs to God, that is overwhelmed, saturated with the truth of God and with the person of God so that it, the truth is exposed, is, is held up, and, the, and lies are exposed. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Man, we get a, our minds and our hearts, our eyes, they, they are under constant affront. I mean, they are just being, just bombarded all the time, whether it's by the blatant and the explicit or just by the mundane. A wayward heart and a wayward mind can seek to satisfy in anything. And so we see the importance of, of, of this communing with God and being in fellowship with him in prayer and in word and in, in gospel community because that is where we are transformed. That is where, light, again, truth is held up and, and lies are exposed. The second way we fight to kill sin is a bit more tangible. We see that we're, in this text, that we're to gouge out eyes and cut off limbs that's a, very, that's, a, that's a call to a very willful act and really is saying eliminate, eliminate those things that can cause you to sin, not as your way of, not as your expression of righteousness, but as a, as a again, an offering and saying, hey, I have been saved to this. This is what I'm about. God is worthy and I want to fight against it. The eye and the hand are not evil here. They're not. So again, that's why we're not saying this is a prescription to do this, but it's saying fight with all that you are. Again, set boundaries. There are things that lead you astray from your affections for God, and they lead you toward destruction. They do. So if it's lust, set up some boundaries. Man, if you don't have to be on social media, get off it. I mean, if you struggle with lust, I would say don't get on it, maybe. Get, get blockers, get accountability, like real accountability. Someone who's going to speak truth to you and not just say, hey, man, I know how it is. But actually, man, be hard on you, loving but hard. Set boundaries. If it's stuff, get rid of your credit cards, pay off debt, make a budget, and get some accountability. If you tend to get drunk when you drink, like, don't drink <laughs> at all. Like, is it worth it? Like, if you know that drunkenness is always a sin, like we can all agree on that. We cannot get around that. And you say, you know, sometimes I just get out there and I get caught up and I just drink a little too much. Why drink it all? The Lord will give you freedom one day. I, <laughs> I maybe this is a, this story's worth it. I think some of you've heard it. <laughs> I early on high school, some I went through a couple of pockets of having a very profane mouth and was really convicted about it, and came to this place of freedom. And I used to play some pretty competitive volleyball, and I was playing in a tournament, and I, had, I, was, playing on the, I was playing on the weak side, and I had this set, and I was about to just drill it. I had an opening, and I was just going to smash it down the line. It was beautiful. My approach was great. The set was great. The form was great. And I spiked it into the net. And before I hit the ground, I was like, shh, and I said it. No one heard it, but I did. And I was like, Lord, this takes me here. I'm not going to play anymore. I don't know when I'll get to play again competitively. 
but I'm not going to do it anymore. Quit playing tournaments. A couple years goes by. I'm in college. I'm still in college. I'm really involved in campus ministry. I'm, an, I'm a platform leader. I lead worship a lot, and I'm up speaking a lot. And we're playing in this organization volleyball tournament. So it's, it's, it's Greek life. It's religious organizations and everything else. We are in the championship game. It's four on four. We're playing against the Pikes, which were the bad boy fraternity. They had just got reinstated from being just, they were, they were called the Cavaliers while they couldn't be the Pikes, you know. So they were out there. It was, it was, it was an awesome scene. It was tailgate scene, you know, bathing suits and whatever else and coolers and cars backed up, loud music, party scene. Man, game is, 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 it's a strong game, very competitive. We're like right near the end. Same situation. Now, let me just tell you, I actually did hit some spikes over the net. But in these two situations, <laughs> I'm, I'm on the weak side again. Same thing. I mean, beautiful set. And I'm coming up. I mean, everybody, like, drinks in hand, watching whatever else, you know, glee, lots of, lots of stuff. And I'm about to spike it. And I hit it into the net again. And I mean, like, it was like Braveheart. As I hit the ground, I am yelling with all of my conviction and, and just whatever else is in there. And I promise you, these are the words that came out of my mouth. It was, Judy, fruity, study, booty. And I mean, like, the record scratched. All of the bathing suits in Greek life stopped. And they just stared at me. And and I'm like, and I'm stunned by what came out of my mouth. And, and, and I looked up, and all I could think to say was, uh, I, don't, I don't cuss. You know? And I gather back up with my, like with my brothers in Christ, and they're like, Heath, man, we, we think you should have just let one fly right there. But, but my point is, is that all that to say is that for a season, I knew that I wasn't supposed to play. And it wasn't some grand list that I had for God to let me know that I was ready again. But it was just this abiding and walking with him. And I felt the freedom to. And I went and played. And I said, tutti fruity studi pooty instead of cussing. And that was a huge victory for me. So <laughs> what I'm saying is that's what you're invited to. You are invited to, hey, let's, let's be real about the sin in our life. Let's realize the destruction that it brings. And let's do whatever we can to be free, laying down the things that we call rights as just freedoms. And saying, we have, we have one right, that is to live out our image of God, to glorify him with all that we are, submitting and surrendering our lives to his truth. Living for his glory, our good, and the redemption of the world around us. That passage says, it says that you, it says that you will, and not that passage, but the Heidelberg Confession says that in doing that, you show the world to Jesus. That's fun. It's relational, so that's what you want. You think you'll be satisfied, but you're not satisfied unless you're living out what you're created to. You're not satisfied in the relationship unless the relationship is being satisfied. Is this supposed to? So there you go. Jesus is challenging what we desire most. I don't even know where I'm at in my notes. That wasn't in there. Um, you know, I mean... And, and some, of, uh, some of our struggles go beyond just daily struggle, daily battles with flesh. And some of it's more profound. Some of it may be addiction. Some of it may be caused from wounds in your past. And if that's you, man, with great vulnerability and trust in the Lord, bring those to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe take that to a, a, a professional Christian counselor or a gospel center recovery group. But bring that. You know, guess what? Scripture says in Romans 8.18, there's, I consider that, uh, no, not that one. We're going to go with Romans 8.1. It says, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because he has made you whole. You can, you can bring it out there. And let me just tell you, this idea of, of saying no to temptation, of saying no to the things that distract and pull us away, and yes to God's will, we're reflecting the reality of his promised kingdom that is to come and is already here. The already not yet tension. We were listening to Gary Thomas teach Friday night, and he was talking about kind of self-discipline, using some kind of adapting it. But I'll say this, saying no when the flesh cries out to be satisfied is to choose immediate sacrifice for delayed benefits. Satisfying the flesh has immediate benefits with delayed consequences. So we see this in Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, that delayed benefit endured the cross, that immediate 
sacrifice, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's seated there because the work is complete. And in Romans 8.18, we see it where Paul experienced the same thing. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Short-term pain, long-term gain. That's what we're invited into. He's challenging what we desire most. He's asking, are you willing to give up any measure it would take in order to receive what you desire? And he's saying, what do you desire? Is there anything you desire more than the riches of an abiding relationship with a heavenly Father in Christ? There is no greater satisfying. Do you desire anything more? The temporal satisfactions of this world they're in our face. They seem satisfying, but God tells us there is one that satisfies, and it's him. Do you desire the will of God? Most of us do. What is the will of God? 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. Coming out of the gate strong here, verse 3. For this is the will of God. Okay, got my attention. What is it? He's saying your sanctification. What is that? Your holiness. You're abiding, you're surrendering, you're submitting to the will and way, the truth, commands of God. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Harkening back to what I just said a minute ago. I feel like when we use the word hearkening, it should go back a little farther than 20 minutes, but, but still. going, Alluding back to what I just said a few minutes ago. So just really quickly to wrap up, I know we're, we're, we're there. Uh, when we look at all of Scripture, we also see that we're not meant to kill sin alone. Um, Hebrews 10 tells us that there's a great gift in the righteousness given to us in Christ. He attained it, not us. And that also there's much at stake. With the greatness of the gift of our new identity in Christ also comes an increased responsibility. The weight is far too great to carry on your own. That's why we've been given one another. So if you follow that train of thought in Hebrews 10, go back and read it all on your own. We're going to pick up in verses 23 through 25. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That, those, those verses, those three verses, are not about just making it through life in a pleasing way or in a, in, in a way that is fulfilling, but it is about making it through life in a way that glorifies God in all that you do. It is about li- making it through life in a way that, that, that displays the righteousness that you've been given in Christ, that points people to God. As we glorify God, it is God's glory that draws man to himself. So as we, as we live that out, we expose the reality of God. We, expose the, we make tangible his kingdom. Our tendency is to get our sin under control. And only then do we share how we got through it. That's our tendency. Our command and our invitation is to share the fight with one another is to bring it, to keep it in the light and to bring others in it with you. Be confessional, be humble. Know you can't do it on your own and know that God has given the body of Christ to walk alongside one another, to fight along, fight for one another. That's why we can, in love, we, we, we get so awkward when it comes to confronting sin in someone's life. We forget why. It shouldn't, yeah, it's awkward, but yet the, the, the benefit should overpower the awkwardness and say for their good and for God's glory. I'm willing to step into that. We've been given one another for that reason. So share your struggles. Keep it in the light. Like I said, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, I'll flip there real quick. I want to read one last verse that I didn't have in my notes, but it comes to mind, and it's there at the end of Hebrews 10. Um, sorry, it's my back. I'm getting there. 
You know how like you get used to a Bible? You can flip to the one you know. This is a new Bible. There we go. Okay, Hebrews 10, last verse in Hebrews 10. Kind of bringing that whole thought together of righteous, gift of righteousness, call to responsibility, gift of the body of Christ. Verse 39, <coughs> excuse me, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That's who we are in Christ. We don't have to live defeated lives. We will stumble. The expectation is not perfection. But the invitation is to walk in grace, surrendering, confessing, being restored over and over again, and all the while exhibiting the character of God, the gospel of Jesus, and being a part of his being salt and light in this world. That's how we go and make disciples. That's how we glorify God in all we do. That daily abiding as the church, fighting for each other, for ourselves, being grateful and humble. So we end each sermon with a time of prayer. And it's a time that some can pray out loud, some can pray silently. If you don't do either one of those and, and maybe don't even know how you feel about prayer, I invite you to listen. Listen to the, the, the voices and the hearts of the people of God and even listen for God to even stir in you. We'll spend some time praying and then Kurt's going to come up and lead us through our time of communion where we want to very intentionally respond to the work of Christ and let this, all of this be a work in you. So I'll start in praying. A few of you can pray out loud and then Kurt will come. God, I am humbled by your love. Lord, you are holy and sovereign God. There is no reason that I should not find your full judgment falling on me. Whether it's past sin, present sin, future sin. But in your love and in your grace, you made a way for me to be restored and to know you in Christ. And, and, and in the same way, God, you know me better than I know myself. And with that being the case, there's no way that you should love me the way you do. But you do. You love us in our brokenness and our sin. And you love us to wholeness. You love us to healing. Lord, your, your arms are not the only expression of your love. I thank you that your truth your commands are an expression of your love. And being shown how to live is a loving act. So God, I pray, Lord, just for a daily humility, a daily gratefulness as I wake up and before my head comes off the pillow, I pray for that reality just to sit on me, just to sit on my chest and to really sink in before I can get up. I love you.